Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Okay, good morning, everybody. Happy Saturday, March the 3rd. I'm Sunday. (laughs) Whatever, whatever day of the week we're in. Uh, Yeah, I, I... I had to wake up at 3.15 Saturday morning, Oklahoma time, yesterday to catch the flight home, and I'm just, I'm still a little uh, behind. behind, yeah, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. We're, this is going to be great, though, this mess, I promise, this message will be awesome. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, happy Sunday, March the 3rd, I can't believe it's already March in 2024, and it is, it is wild how we're already a sixth of the way through the year, through the calendar year, just Weird, so weird. Uh, but we are going to study Zechariah 14 today. Oh, I don't know what happened there. Uh, Zechariah 14, we're going to go through 9 through 15 today. And before we dive into the Word of God, let's open up in prayer like we always should. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. And God, I just pray that you would speak to us through your Word and through Zechariah 14. God, as we're, as we're nearing the end of this book, Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes focused solely on you. Lord, because as we look ahead to the promise of your return and the eternal kingdom and the millennial reign of Christ on the earth, God, it should encourage us and exhort us to press on and to finish strong in our lives, to finish strong for you, to run this race and to not run it in vain as we look toward the day of Christ from Philippians. The day of Christ when you call us home in the rapture, God, and whether that happens in our lifetime or not, Lord, the expectation should elevate our walk with you. And we thank you so much for that and the urgency for what you're calling us to rise up in these days like Esther 4.14 and to be a light and a beacon in a very, very dark and desperate world. And so we thank you again for this time together, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so as we're diving in here, I think next week we'll finish Zechariah, but this week we're gonna study verses 9 through 15, and the, the staging ground of Armageddon we looked at earlier in the chapter, but these verses are actually going to be when Jesus, how does he destroy his enemies? So what exactly happens to them? And that's what we're going to look at today. And then the more uh, topographical changes within the Middle East. So, you know, as you're studying everything, and I shared this at the conference because it just is so meaningful to me, but just do not ever forget that you have the anointing within you. And I want, I really cannot stress that enough because, you know, as in the world that we're living in and you need truth, you have to look at everything through the Bible, through the lens of truth. And the Bible is the truth, the only source of truth. And so when you're looking at the world and everything that's going on, you've got to use the anointing to teach you everything in the Bible. So when you're looking at the world, you can actually see it for what it is biblically, which is the source of truth. Okay, so Zechariah's name, remember, means whom Yahweh remembers, and his, his sons, he was the son of Berkiah, which means Yahweh blesses. Berkiah was the son of Edu, which means the appointed time. 
And when you put those genealogies in order from Zechariah's grandfather to Zechariah, their names mean at the appointed time, Yahweh blesses whom Yahweh remembers. And remember that, that message was so important for God's people as they were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And they were sitting there and, and they went back to rebuild the temple, but they needed to remember that God will bless them at the appointed time, that God remembered them it, despite their captivity. And so just as a reminder on this timeline in the Old Testament, you know, we're at the very end, the book in Zechariah, we're at the very end of the post-exile period. So they've been released from Babylon. Cyrus conquered and Persia conquered Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. They released the captives because Daniel showed Cyrus the scroll of Isaiah, where God calls Cyrus by name 150 years in advance, that he would raise up a servant named Cyrus who would petition the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. It's all in Isaiah 40, 43 through 45. You can find it uh, kind of sprinkled throughout there. But Cyrus uh, believes Daniel is, is kind of shocked that his name is in the word of God, and he gives them financial incentives to then go back and rebuild the temple. And remember, a very small fraction of them took him up on his offer. But Zechariah is one of them and goes back to Jerusalem Remember, they don't get very far in rebuilding the temple, so God raises up Haggai to encourage them to press on to spiritual maturity, and he raises up then Zechariah, I'm sorry, to press on toward finishing the temple. He raises up Zechariah to press on to spiritual maturity so that he, they can finish the temple. And the whole book of Zechariah, if you remember, it's amazing from chapter 1 to 14, the whole thing speaks of Jesus, the stone his throne, Jesus the Nazarene, the king riding on the donkey from Zechariah 9.9, 9, the, the shepherd, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver and what they did with the money, Jesus being pierced or crucified in Zechariah 12. And then today, finally, we'll get to look at his return in power and destroying his enemies, but how he does it. And on the outline, just remember, as we wrap, wrap up Zechariah, you know, God may wake you up in the night also and give you something. And what I would encourage all of you to do is as you get closer to God, you never know when he'll want to tell you something. And just trust me from experience, you'll never know when he has something for you. Keep something by your bed, like a notepad. Um, I use my phone. Maybe it's not the right thing to do, but I always write notes in my phone just so I don't lose it. Uh, but keep something nearby because as God speaks to you in your life, as you grow in your personal walk with him, you'll want to write these things down. So remember, Zechariah had these 10 visions all in one night, and obviously they're Holy Spirit inspired. And then we're down here at the very bottom for chapters 12 through 14, which all discuss the second arrival of Christ. Okay, now, if you remember back in chapter 12, it set the staging ground for Armageddon, Chapter 13 discussed the cleansing of the house of Israel once the millennium was established. And chapter 14 actually lays out some of the events surrounding the staging ground of Armageddon, but prior to the kingdom being established, okay? So these, these final three chapters of Zechariah, they're not necessarily in chronological order. And the first three verses of chapter 14 was Armageddon, remember the staging ground of it, then we studied him stepping foot on the Mount of Olives last time. And what I want to remind you all of is that, especially I'm telling you from being at the Prophecy Conference the last few days, 
the world is obsessed with Armageddon, with the apocalypse, with the end times, with what's going on. Even people, there were people there that we met kind of in the, the conference was attached to the mall in Orlando. And there were people kind of from the mall that we met that they, they weren't even believers, but they were asking questions about the end times, just wanting to know, hey, what is this about? What's going on with the end times? There was a lady there that was a Christian uh, that we met. She's from Israel. She's a Christian, but knew nothing about prophecy and wanted to study it. And she had her little boy with her. And so there are a lot of people out there very, very interested and hungry to know what is going on. So just don't ever forget that the apocalypse, all that means in Greek is the unveiling of. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. All it means is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's who he truly is as king who will set up his throne forever. And that's what you've got to point them to. It's not about, you know, survival time or bunkers or, or anything like that. We're going to go home, praise God for it, before that happens. But, okay, so earlier in chapter 14, the staging ground of Armageddon, Remember, Jesus destroyed his enemies and their blood was filling the valley up to the horse's bridle. Then Jesus stepped on the Mount of Olives, changing the topography in the region. And the millennial temple had rivers of living water going forth to both the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean. Okay, if you remember that. So in this section of chapter 14, though, we get a glimpse of how Jesus destroys his enemies as he returned in Armageddon. And, and it's just a reminder, too, that everything we study in the Bible, be sure, to be sure to search the scriptures yourself to prove those things be so. From Acts 17, 11, in 2 Timothy 2, 15, you've got to rightly divide the word of God on your own so that you can stand not ashamed at the end of this. Okay, so the first, the first verse today in, in verse 9, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth, so not just in Jerusalem, but over all the earth in that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. So there's never again, and this time forward, there will never again be a false religion on planet earth. There's not gonna be an argument with Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus or any other false doctrine in Christianity. Never again, all of that goes away. The true God is going to set up his throne and he's going to rule the earth from Jerusalem and there will be one religion, the true religion, which is worshiping God. You know, it's funny too, because Jesus was probably the most anti-religious guy to ever walk the earth. He hated how the Pharisees and the Sadducees turned into these, you know, legalistic religious people that you had to do certain things to gain something. And Jesus hated it. He talked to them about that all the time. But at this time, religion, I even hate to use the word religion, but religion goes away it's true worship and fellowship with the king. That's what we have to look forward to. Okay, so right now, in this day and age, the whole earth is in wickedness, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> and just think about how Satan tempted Jesus in Matthew 4. Remember, Satan pulled him out into the wilderness, and he took him up to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. You know, from that from that alone, you know that he wasn't in our three and a half dimensions. He had to take him somewhere outside of those where you could, in the other six and a half dimensions, actually see all of the earth. There's not a mountain on earth where you could stand at the peak of it and see the other side of the world. 
And that's, so that's one way, you know, Satan and Jesus, they, they went somewhere else. They went outside of our domain and had this conversation. But look at 1 John 5, 5, 19. And we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. You know, in the Greek, you could almost translate that as the whole world sways under the wicked one. So Satan. And when Satan tempted Jesus, he offered him all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, it's a temptation because he actually has ownership of them right now. And what he's trying to say to him was, don't go to the cross to get this back from me. If you'll bow down to me, I'll just give it to you. So he was trying to, he was trying to tempt Jesus not to go to the cross. And praise God, Jesus was not tempted by it because he had to vanquish death, hell, and the grave at the cross so that we could live immortal with him. Now, there will come a day when the whole earth will be ruled in righteousness. And in that day, there shall be one Lord whose name is one. Remember from Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And there will be a universal pure language on the earth at this time from Zephaniah 3.9. For then will I turn to the people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. So I don't, my guess is that language will not be English. It probably will not be what you and I speak right now. I'm just guessing. Uh, I could be wrong, but I think that the Lord probably will, it's probably Hebrew because if you study Hebrew, it's, a, it's an amazing language that the Lord ordained and gave to his people. It's, it could be Hebrew. It could be something that Adam and the Lord spoke together. I don't know. Uh, it's kind of curious, but I love in Zephaniah, there will be one language in the world. Okay, and Jesus alone will be worshiped across the entire planet. Look at Isaiah 54, 5. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. The God of the whole earth. Now that hasn't happened yet because the more and more you travel and talk to people, the more and more you realize he is not the God of a lot of people in the, in the world, but he will be. In Revelation 12, 12, verse 5, and she brought forth a man-child. Now, if you remember from our study back in Revelation, chapter 12 of that book is kind of an overview of the entire Bible in one chapter. And when you study Revelation, you have to realize that God does these breaks along what's happening in the tribulation. Chapter 12 is one of them. There's these parenthetical sections where God takes a break in between the sixth and the seventh seal the sixth and the seventh trumpet and the sixth and seventh bowl of those three stages in the Bible. And he, he explains something else. And really chapter 12 is him explaining the whole kind of paradigm of the Bible from Satan want to take out the woman clothed in the sun, moon, and stars as Israel. She's bringing forth the man child, Jesus, and the dragon is there to consume him as soon as, as he's born. But the dragon doesn't win the man-child gets caught up to his throne in heaven. That's the ascension. It's also a picture of the rapture of the church, the body of Christ being taken out of here. But in chapter 12, verse five, and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now, if you remember back in Daniel 2, remember in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the statue of the five Gentile kingdoms, and it was destroyed by a giant stone cut without hands, and that stone being none other than Jesus Christ. So if you remember in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, 
he had the statue as gold, silver, brass, iron, and then iron mixed with clay. So you had these five Gentile kingdoms. And then the Lord interpreted it for, for Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel. And he gave him, and ba- the gold was Babylon, the silver was Persia, brass was Greece, the iron was Rome the first time, and the iron and clay was Rome the second time, or the final kingdom that the Antichrist comes out of. And in chapter 7 of Daniel, Daniel sees the same thing, but he sees them as these ferocious beasts, the winged lion, the bear on the side, the leopard, and then the terrible beast with 10 heads. Now, the ten, the iron and clay at the very bottom of the statue, the 10 toes and the 10 heads in Daniel 7 represented the 10 kings that the Antichrist comes out of. So what you're seeing right now, that hasn't happened yet. That's what's ahead for this earth, okay, are these 10 kingdoms that are going to be set up. And we talked about that at length in our study on prophecy, but the Antichrist, remember, he rises up out of them, puts three of them down, and the other seven consolidate power to him. And then that is when the tribulation starts, then when he affirms a covenant with Israel at that point. Look at Daniel 2, verse 44. In the days of these kings, speaking of the final kingdom, the iron mixed with clay, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. See, what they're trying to do right now since 2020 is bring in this kingdom without the king. That's the globalists want the kingdom without the true king. That's always what Satan's tried to do ever since Nimrod. And again, he's just creative, and now he's trying to push in the system that then the Antichrist will walk into to take over. Because every time he would raise up a leader to try to force the system on the world, the world rebels against him every single time since Nimrod. Look at Hitler, for example, in recent times. So Satan got creative, and he decided, okay, well, I'll just get the world to buy into a system And then I'll have it ready for my guy or entity, fallen angel, whoever he is, to come in and just take this over. And that's that's what you've been seeing the setup on for about the past five years, actually. But in the time of those kings, okay, God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. And it's going to break in pieces. That is an amazing verse. That is Armageddon. Jesus coming back and setting up the kingdom. Because remember, he sees a stone cut without hands. And that stone, that mountain that's cut without hands, shatters the feet of the statue. So all of the Gentile kingdoms are then destroyed. And it becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth in Daniel. That's the kingdom that we're talking about, the millennial reign of Christ. Now, I just want to show these again because it's always amazing to me how all of these, these globalists have great ideas for unity across the world to set the world up into these regional governments. And the UN even has, it's almost like they read the Bible and they're, and they're going, okay, where are we now? Okay, we're here. We need to set up this millennial development goal from the UN where we separate the world into 10 regions. Isn't that amazing? Their maps always have 10 for some reason, but it's exactly what the Bible says. And I love how the UN even called it the millennium development goal. It's almost like they know, okay, we've got to develop, help develop the millennial reign of Christ. Let's get this world into these 10 regions. Jesus will come back. 
but unfortunately that's not their, their motive. The map on the, the left is from the Club of Rome, if you've ever heard of them, but they had the world separated into 10 regions. The map on the right is the post-war New World map. Again, 10 regions. It's always 10. These guys always think in groups of 10 for some reason. And it's, it's just amazing because God told us ever since Daniel that the world would be separated into 10 regions at the end times. Now, you and I are promised not to see the Antichrist, okay? But as you're watching the system get set up in these 10 regions, then you know that we're that much closer to it. And so just be encouraged by that. I don't know if we'll see the 10 regions set up or not. We're not, God doesn't have something about that in the Bible. All we know is we won't see the Antichrist that comes out of them. And so just keep that in mind. It's another reason why you've got to be in the word of God yourself and be girded up in faith. Okay, in verse 10 here, all the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's wine presses. Okay, the Hebrew word for as a plain is, is Arabah. It's used a couple times in the Bible. Just look at Isaiah 35.1, for example. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert, that's that same word in Hebrew, shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Okay, so this, the deep, the great rift, this deep, it's, a, it's from the Dog River at the coast north of Beirut in Lebanon, and it goes above the Sea of Galilee, through the Jordan Valley, through the Dead Sea, down into the Gulf of Aqaba, and on into northern Africa. Okay, there's this great rift, if you look at it, uh, you could Google search that and just look at it. But this great rift, it's also called out in Deuteronomy 1.7, Deuteronomy 3, verse 17, and Joshua 11.2. It's actually considered the deepest depression on the surface of the earth. And once again, like we studied last time, Jesus is going to step on the Mount of Olives and it's going to split in half. He changes the topography in the area. Apparently, from verse 10 here, he takes this whole valley, that whole area, and lifts it up somehow. And that's pretty cool. Will the entire rift be lifted up or just an area? I'm not sure, but the, the hint that he gives there in verse 10 is that that whole area will be lifted up. Now we know also from Micah 4 and, and Psalms 48 that Jerusalem will be lifted up even higher in the millennium. So look at Micah 4.1. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. So Jerusalem is going to be uh, established in the top of the mountains. It's not there right now. So some, he changes something there too. Look at Psalms 48, one through three. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. That's Jerusalem, obviously. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. Because remember, the whole earth is going to look to Jerusalem. It may be such that it's set up, and I don't know if at this point in the millennium, if we have access to the other, if the inhabitants of the earth have access to the other dimensions or not. I don't know. But somehow the whole earth is going to see and flow toward Jerusalem. 
Now, Benjamin's gate is in the north wall of the city in the Old Testament. It's also called the gate of Ephraim from 2 Kings 14, verse 13, as the road from it ran through Benjamin and on to Ephraim, okay? The corner, the first gate, this gate was apparently in the northeast corner of Jerusalem. The corner gate from 2 Kings 14, verse 13 and Jeremiah 31, 38 was in the other side, the northwest corner. In the Tower of Hananil, in that same passage, was near the northeast corner of the wall. And archaeologists actually discovered that one recently, some years ago. They thought it didn't exist from Jeremiah 31, 38, but it, they found it. And the wine, the wine press of the king is in the southeast of the city near the king's gardens, okay, in the pool of Siloam. It's uh, the detailed, that detailed topography in these verses, it gives you a hint too that you've got to take this very literally. God's not, he's not using just allegories or, you know, some, some just, you should just take this as it's just him going to do something. He's actually naming out places where this will happen. So take it very serious. Okay, verse 11, and men shall dwell in it and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Okay, now we know from October 7th, there's still destruction going on when uh, Hamas rolled in and, and murdered all those civilians in Israel. And Jerusalem has been under really stress, I'll say, for about the last 70 years, you know, ever since they became a nation again. There's suicide bombers, rockets fly in from Lebanon, rockets fly in from the south, they fly in from the Gaza Strip, they fly in from Syria, you know, kind of all over the place. They've never really been at peace since they've been reestablished as a nation, but they will be. And if you ever talk to Jewish people, there's one thing they are so desperate for, and it's peace in their homeland. They, they just they are so desperate for the peace of Jerusalem and they will finally get it in the millennium. Now, utter destruction, this only shows up in one other verse in the Bible. It's in 1 Kings 20, verse 40, 42. And he said unto them, unto him, thus saith the Lord, because thou hast let go out of thy hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore thy life shall go for his life and thy people for his people. So God uses that phrase only there in the Bible. Uh, Jerusalem and the entire world will be safely inhabited actually in the millennium, which is really cool to think about. You know, how many of you would want to go spend like a weekend in Chicago right now? You know, not, not me. It's actually statistically, remember I showed this some months ago, but Chicago is more dangerous than Afghanistan right now. You have a higher probability of being shot in Chicago than in Afghanistan. Now that is wild. That is really wild but the entire world will finally dwell in safety. Look at Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. Now it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established again in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See, that's why it's at peace because the capital of the world in Jerusalem will have a righteous king who is sending his word out to the ends of the earth and back, finally. So the millennium, these verses are used actually by the United Nations 
minus the king, Isaiah 2.4 and Micah 4.3. And we've looked at this in the past, but look at that again. He, he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And God repeats this verse in Micah 4.3, and he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, the beginning part of these verses are what the United Nations take off. So they remove, and he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. They take that off, but then they, they want peace. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And they use that. It's actually at the headquarters of the United Nations at the UN. If you can read it on that concrete wall in your notes, they have Isaiah 2.4 right there. They shall beat their spears into, into plowshares and their swords into pruning hooks. And they talk about how there won't be war anymore, but they leave off the fact that there won't be war when the king arrives and sets up his kingdom. Because they're, they want peace. You know, they want to usher in this false peace, this satanic peace across the world without the king. That's, that's the goal, is to try to do it without the king Jesus, without the ruling king. Okay, in verse 12 here, now this, this gets pretty cool. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. So remember back in the beginning of the chapter, we saw the blood of the horse's bridle, Jesus returns. So how did he wipe them out? That's what this verse describes. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. That's pretty graphic. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes or in their eye sockets. And their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. Okay, that's, that's pretty descriptive of the Lord that he would describe how he's going to wipe out his enemies. And the fact is when he returns, he just lets go of them. Because remember from Colossians 1, 16 and 17, for by him, Jesus Christ, were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him, all things consist. Remember in, in the Greek, that's held together. By him, everything's held together. And we've talked about how his sound waves have been discovered by quantum physics that hold every molecular atom together. So when he returns, all he does is just let them go by the word of his mouth. Remember in Revelation 19, and a sharp sword went forth out of his mouth. So he just, by his word, he just melts them away. They just destroy right there. There's not a war. There's no struggle. You know, it's not them rushing him and trying to take him out. All he does, he shows up and just obliterates them. That's it. And that's what happens in verse 12. All of their flesh just melts away at the word of God. Now that would be, uh, quite the way to go. You know, if you're, if you're standing there and you're staring at the creator of the universe with his eyes as a flame of fire, gold and radiant, I mean, I don't, I don't know how you would not want to just run away and repent, you know, at that point. But he just, they stand there and he just lets them go. 
So it's just pretty amazing that God wanted to scribe that right there. And it's a link to the New Testament of Colossians 1.16. Now we're going to see that not only are those people destroyed, but in verse, verse 15, we'll see in a minute that also the animals are destroyed. And I, I've got a theory on why, but I'm not exactly sure. A very similar fate was promised by God back in Leviticus 26. Look at 14 through 16 here. But if you will not hearken unto me and will not do all these commandments, and if ye shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgment, so that you will not do all my commandments, but that you break my covenant, I, will also, I also will do this unto you. I will even appoint over you terror, consumption, and the burning og, og whatever that means in Hebrew. I should have looked up that verse, that word. That shall consume the eyes, okay, and cause sorrow of heart, and ye shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Consume the eyes. That's kind of interesting. God had that all the way back in Leviticus 26, but that's what he does to his enemies. You know, the easier path would probably just be to obey God, and then you don't have to worry about it. If you just trust the Lord and obey the Lord, then you won't melt away before him. That would be pretty, that's a, that's a great consolation prize. I, I would take that any day. Okay, so it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold everyone on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. So God's going to set his enemies against one another. So remember, the enemies have surrounded Jerusalem. Those that are in the valley with Jesus melt away, and their blood fills up to the horse's bridle. Apparently, there's some people outside the valley that are seeing this happen. And what they do, God sets them against one another. And if you remember, this happened back in Judges 7, verse 22, and 1 Samuel 14. Look at Judges 7. And the 300 blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And the host fled in Zarath and to the border of Abubalha, however you say that, unto Taboth. So, so what he did was he just had the enemies turn on each other and they wiped each other out. You see that in 1 Samuel 14, verses 14 through 16, at the, towards the very end of verse 16, it says, and behold, the multitude melted away and they went on beating down one another. And a couple times in the Bible, you'll find this where God just turns the enemy on one another. And those were just two examples, but I think he's going to, he does that apparently also in some of the wars coming up with uh, Psalms 83 and Ezekiel 38 and some of those other spots. But the enemies apparently turn on each other and start just taking each other out, probably in terror and consumption in terms of what in the world just happened? What did I just see? And they just start freaking out. Okay, and Judah shall also shall fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. So remember, there's great abundance after this war when he sets up the kingdom and he divides it amongst his people. Remember back in verse one of this chapter, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. So the spoil of the heathen, the whole earth, the whole earth then is laid at the feet of Jesus and he divvies it out to his people for the millennium. That's pretty cool. Look at 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Thine, O Lord, is the, great, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. 
Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. And in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand is, is it is to make great and to do and to give them strength unto all. To give strength unto all. That hasn't happened yet, but it will. Okay, the last verse here. And so shall the, the plague, so shall be the plague of the horse and of the mule, of the camel, and of the ass, and of all the beasts that shall be in these tents as this plague. Now, it's kind of an odd verse because why would God need to destroy the animals as well? And, and I'm not exactly sure. You've got to search this out in the scripture yourself and figure it out. But it could have something to do with hybrid creatures once again, as in the days of Noah, all the way back. Because remember, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 37, but is in the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now he's talking about at the end of the tribulation, shall so be the coming of the Son of Man. So as you're watching right now, all of this go on across the world with CRISPR. And, and if you don't know what that is, they try to slice DNA in animals and they make these hybrid creatures and they're, they're using it to try where you can actually pay money and choose what kind of child you want. They'll slice apart the DNA and get rid of generational defects or whatever it may be and try to give you this super person, right? This superhuman being that's perfect genetically. And they're doing exactly, exactly what they did back in Genesis 6 in the days of Noah, where they tried to mess with humanity and DNA and the genome. And that's the whole transhumanism thing. If you've looked at that, they want transhumanism to push in where they blend man and machine. It, what they're trying to do is they're trying to make it where they can become immortal without being born again. That's the goal. That ultimately, that's the goal. What the, and they may not admit it, but if you listen to these people, they want their consciousness to live forever without having to surrender to Jesus and be born again. And that's the only way to truly live forever is to do that. And so in any case, this could be a reference as to why Jesus needs to destroy the animals. We may be dealing with these hybrids again. You see it all over ancient culture. I mean, look at in Egypt, the Sphinx, you know, with the head of a man and the body of a lion. You see it everywhere in ancient, in ancient culture. And the Greeks have it everywhere, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, you know, all of these different people uh, drew these pictures and were obsessed with blending and messing with the DNA. And you kind of wonder, I remember even just years ago before I kind of figured all this out or the Lord showed this to us, I just remember thinking, why? Why are they, what are they so obsessed about with mixing man and animal and these superhuman, you know, titans from Greek mythology and all this stuff. It's, that's why. Okay, look at uh, Matthew 24, 40 ver, ver, through 41. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding in the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Now, if you look at that set of verses in Luke 17, he, he has three groups of people. The people in the field, the people grinding at the mill, and people sleeping at night. So you have morning, noon, and night all in one verse, which is a testament to the round earth because simultaneously it's morning, noon, and night and he's rapturing out people and they disappear suddenly. And so this rapture event happens and 
he's looking at a lot of people surmise that the days of Noah in verse 37 are leading up to the rapture. And certainly that's the case, but it, we know it'll be like the days of Noah during the tribulation because if you study Revelation 9, when the bottomless pit opens up and all these weird demonic hybrid creatures come out, that's one way you know it will be like the days of Noah again. And like I mentioned kind of in the announcements, just to wrap up here, you know, the world really, truly, the world really is grasping for answers right now. And when you talk to these people, they are, these are like-minded believers that are just desperate for the word of God. They are so hungry to study the Bible and to go somewhere where they can study the Bible and not be ridiculed or looked at like they're crazy, <laughs> but just to search the scriptures out and to be with like-minded believers. And even people that don't know anything about the Bible are trying to stash away money, stash away gold, build bunkers, hunker down, find water, you know, and all of these doomsday preppers. It's been going on for decades, but it feels like it's, it's ratcheting up. Like the world knows we're living in a time, a very unique time that's different than any other time in history. And so what it, what it means for you and I is we, it's a call to get serious about the word of God and get serious about the Bible, get serious about your walk with the Lord. And next week when we finish Zechariah 14 and we study the, the end of the millennium, the, the whole millennial reign of Christ, after all of this Armageddon stuff, after Jesus wipes out his enemies, you know, we are barreling toward that time and it's going to happen very quickly, whether it happens again in our lifetime or not, our lives are just but a vapor and we're just gonna be out of here and with the Lord forever. But until then, we've got to stand up and have answers for the people of the earth that are so desperate to know. And we've gotta be like the Bible says, right? We have to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within. And so please, please, please do not, do not forsake your calling in the Lord. Your call, what he's gifted you with, to, to rise up like from Esther 4.14, like I mentioned in this time, the body of Christ needs you. They need you. People that you don't, even, you don't even realize, I mean, how many people are out there in the body of Christ that are just suffering, greatly suffering, persecution, studying the Bible, seeking a, a, a home, right? A place to call home to be with the body of Christ. And as we're moving forward here, just rise up and take that serious this year. Okay, if you're watching us somewhere around the world or if, even if you're here today and you're not saved, it is so easy that if you shall, thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And you're finally then, you're born again. And what happens when you're born again, the old dies away and you can never be unborn. That's why Jesus used that phrase with Nicodemus of being born again. It's awesome. Once you're born in the family of God, you're never then exiled out of it. And, and then when you're born again, the key is to yield your life to the king and let him refine you and burn everything off of you that you had as baggage in your life before. And one of the things I told the, the people out in Orlando is at the rapture, what I love about the rapture is Everything in God's family at that point in the church that was dead is gone away with, everything. Because the dead in Christ rise first and then we get our immortal bodies 
So no more sickness, no more pain, no more death, no more grave. All of it goes away right then at the last trump in the twinkling of an eye, you shall be changed. That's what you have to look forward to, but you have to get born again first. And then you have that promise. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, I praise your name. Lord, thank you so much for the promise of your return to fight your enemies and to wipe them out and to set up a righteous kingdom where the entire earth will flow to Jerusalem to worship you. And God, as you continue to move in our lives, I pray that Lord, each one of us would continue to yield every aspect of our lives to you in a very serious way and to get into the word of God, to raise our children according to the word of God, to look to you as our supply, our source, our provision, our strength. And we thank you, Father, so much for this time together. Now, Lord, be with us as we leave this place and go out into the world. May we be a witness and salt and light for everyone that's looking for a reason of the hope that lies within each one of us. And be with us right here next week as we gather and finish Zechariah 14. God, I thank you again for this time together. And Lord, please heal all of those that are out sick. God, all of those that are with sick children, that have ailments in their families, Lord, we just pray mighty healing over every one of them by your Holy Spirit, God. Be with them and breathe life into them as we turn back, as we turn back toward you, Lord, in everything. In Jesus' name, amen.